This is a Federal News Network podcast. There's a new position at the U.S. Agency for International Development. It's called the Chief Digital Development Officer. For what the job is all about and why, because I don't know, we've got the guy who holds it. Christopher Burns joins me now. Mr. Burns, good to have you on. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity to chat today. So are you new to USAID in this job, or is this something they've added to your duties, or have you switched offices? It's a new area of responsibility for me. I've been with AID for just over 12 years now, and during that time, I've had the incredible opportunity of building USAID's digital development practice from start. Uh, I began back in 2011 when I designed the first multi-stakeholder partnership focused on mobile phone technology at the time. And that was focused on closing the gender digital divide that had just been identified in the developing world. And from that moment, I've been able to be along the journey of what is now the technology division in the Bureau for Development, Democracy and Innovation in our Innovation Technology and Research Hub. So I hold the position of Director for Technology and now, in addition to that, the Chief Digital Development Officer. All right, let's begin then a little bit earlier, and that is digital development. What is that in the aid context? Sure. Digital development is a way of acknowledging that business has changed in the field of international development and humanitarian assistance. And we want to make sure that in our programming, we are fostering an open, inclusive, and secure digital ecosystem in countries where we work around the world. And we really want to make sure that, in particular, underserved and marginalized communities can access digital technologies and maximize them for their socioeconomic and livelihood needs. Well, uh, how does that take form? Many years ago, there was a gambit to have the $100 laptop. You may remember that. That goes back a couple decades now to put some kind of a digital means in every person's hands that could not afford it otherwise. How does this take form now in the smartphone era, in the cellular era? Right. We've learned a lot from one laptop per child from back in the day. And, you know, I think right when that was coming online is when we were switching from this idea of ICT for D, so information and communication technology for developments, to digital developments. I think back in the day, digital technology was treated more as an add-on and something to think about after a program was designed. Digital development kind of flips that on its head to say when you're designing any program across any sector, be it health, economic growth, education, food security, identifying how digital technologies are going to help us achieve the objectives of that work from the beginning, and also thinking about the role of data in driving better decision-making, strategic planning, and adaptive programming, and the role that digital technologies actually allow us to be a more data-driven organization. And so the whole rubric has shifted a lot since those days. And a lot of that is embedded in the first ever USAID digital strategy that we released in April 2020. And I'd be happy to share a little bit more about that strategy if that's of interest to you, Tom. Yeah, but first, give us an example of what a digital program might look like for distributing aid. I mean, USAID funds organizations that are generally indigenous to the country you're working in. So there's several parties involved here, and then there's the ultimate aid recipients. What does a digital effort look like in that context? Yeah, I could point to a lot of examples. Uh, In some cases, it's focused exclusively on uh, those digital technologies. In others, it's a more sectoral effort that has a digital component as an enabler. But I think the best example that I could share with you 
is what we did in post Ebola, West Africa, particularly in Liberia, where we recognized as they were trying to mitigate the health crisis there, that it was really hard to get information out to the field and track patient zero and have health workers on the ground be able to do their work. And so once Ebola was no longer a serious crisis, we did a number of things. We partnered with a Google local affiliate called C-Squared, and we built a fiber ring around Monrovia, almost 200 kilometers of fiber, and then connected a lot of the uh, line ministries and the internet service providers to that fiber. Uh, We also brought in a two-way mobile communications platform that is called mHero, that allows the Ministry of Health to engage with frontline health workers and share real-time information. That platform is still being used today in the context of COVID-19. And we also introduced mobile money into the country so that health workers and teachers could get paid without having to leave their communities and travel long distances to banks. So, So that gives you an idea of it's all about driving greater efficiencies and more effectiveness in what we're doing in our development work with the introduction of these digital tools and technologies. We're speaking with Christopher Burns. He's the first ever Chief Digital Development Officer at USAID. And a moment ago, you mentioned the digital strategy. Maybe just give us a broad overview of what that is and how these projects fit in with it. So the strategy was released in April 2020. It's the first of its kind for USAID. And it really charts an agency-wide approach to international development in what is a rapidly evolving digital age. It's got two mutually reinforcing objectives. One is to improve development and humanitarian assistance outcomes through the responsible use of digital technology in our programming. And the other is to strengthen the openness, inclusiveness, and security of country digital ecosystems themselves. And you really can't do one without the other, we would posit. The strategy itself called for the establishment of a senior level digital development position to coordinate digital program initiatives across the agency and to ensure synergies and consistent approaches in those initiatives, both within the inner agency and with external partners. So in late November last year, AID designated me as the first chief digital development officer. And there's a couple of things that it requires me to do if you want me to outline those. Well, are you a techie or are you a development and aid distribution expert that uses techies to help you build what it is that you need to deliver services and aid digitally? Yeah, that's a fun question. I am not a techie. I I am an international development practitioner with more than 25 uh, years of experience and a couple degrees on that topic. And I've worked in the field and lived in West Africa for seven and a half years, for example. But it was really in West Africa when I was the program and training officer for Peace Corps Niger from 06 to 09, effectively like the deputy country director, where I really saw the utility of digital technology in development work. In that position, a lot of our Peace Corps volunteers were doing a lot of radio broadcasting in local languages, uh, where they would do it on different themes, such as forestry or agricultural management or education. And they were really like local celebrities uh, when they would broadcast those programs and then go around their towns and, and have dialogue with folks. And it struck me, it was right around the time that the mobile phone was just coming online in Niger. And radio is is such a brilliant form of communication, Tom, you know so well, in getting messages out there, but not as effective in understanding if those messages have been received or understood or if there's been a behavior change associated with it. So the mobile phone, when that was introduced, was really my aha moment saying, wow, this is where we can definitely do development more effectively 
And I really see it as like that grand, great enabler, particularly for underserved communities to engage with governments, to engage with one another, and to start driving real change in, in development. And if you're working in, say, a health project or a food project, I mean, that's what you do is help with the basics that people need in these places. And is it necessary for the ultimate recipient of that vaccine, if that's the case, or of that bag of rice, if that's the case, to be digitally connected? Or does it only need to extend as far as the local agent or grantee on behalf of USAID to be digitally equipped? Well, I suppose part of the response to that question is, uh, who are we in service to? If the ultimate goal is to foster economic growth and empowerment and opportunity for the end user, and we look at it at a community level and even at an individual level, then I would say, yes, they need to be empowered enough to be able to effectively manage their mobile device or uh, internet connection, to have the right digital literacy and capacity to engage online safely to understand perhaps the importance of data privacy and how to mitigate cyber threats to them, particularly for folks coming online, and really want to make sure that everyone equally can have access to that. And you're right. We look at our work oftentimes at a sectoral level, right? In humanitarian assistance, getting food aid out to someone, or in agricultural programming, making sure that smallholder farmers have the information that they need to make informed decisions or in digital health, as you noticed, making sure that we are offering the services to the end user, such as what a digital birth certificate might afford them in granting access to public sector social service delivery. And so, you know, you can think across that gambit and try to recognize that in health, for example, where do low cost sensors come in so that farmers can understand what's going on on their farm and get that tailored, customized information based on their needs, not some generalized message that goes out to them. Or in health delivery, what is the role of digital identity and biometrics so that families can have access to the services they need in a way that ensures privacy and security? So if you get away from humanitarian direct aid, which sometimes happens, but look at more of the as you put it, sectoral development challenges like better agriculture or better healthcare delivery. It sounds like you don't want to help a nation develop its agricultural capacity and talent to the 1970 level, but rather to the 2022 level. And if you look at the most productive and most advanced farming techniques in the world, in places like the United States and Europe, there's a lot of digital stuff that goes on for high-yield farming and efficient farming. Is that a good way to put it? That's a great way to put it. And and I think using the example of precision agriculture in in the U.S. uh, and in North America is the right way to approach it, right? A lot of folks are looking at IoT-enabled tractors and machinery equipment and how do you drive the big data behind that to make better informed decisions. I mean, there's a reason why all the big ad companies are buying hand over fist the data analytics firms. It's a sustainable business model, but it's also setting themselves up for success tomorrow. There's no reason that smallholder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia need to wait for that moment, right? There's a lot of opportunity to employ data-informed decision-making on their fields so that they can be more productive, so they can have stronger access to markets, and so that they can build the economic growth of their families. 
We're speaking with Christopher Burns. He's the first ever chief digital development officer at USAID. And from the internal standpoint of the agency, as the chief digital development officer, do you also work with the digital people that do IT and the data officers and that whole panoply of people that might be developing, you know, the systems to run finance for USAID, but it's the same technologies. It is. A lot of that remit uh, lies with our chief information officer and chief data officer and and others, which we liaise with closely. Our focus is at the programmatic side, so in-country and not operationally. We are not in the business of building things as much as we are in the business of ensuring that the approaches are done in a right way. Say, for example, the growing use of artificial intelligence, right? We have a brilliant team within my division who tries to understand its utility to the field of international development and to make sure that the entrepreneurs in country who are employing AI and machine learning and the innovators in country or the implementing partners who are delivering our programs are employing AI responsibly and ethically, right? Making sure that protections are in place. Now, in some cases, we have programs like through our development innovation ventures that go out and solicit new ideas at a country level. And those new businesses there might be building artificial intelligence, or they might be pulling from off-the-shelf programs to deploy. And we want to make sure that they're doing it the right way. So to give you a flavor of the type of work we do, we have something called the Principles for Digital Development. These are nine best practices that USAID co-developed in 2015 to say, if you're going to introduce any digital technology into a program, let's do it the right way. Let's make sure that it's designed with the user in mind, that it's built for sustainability and scale, that it has protections in place. And there are now over 300 endorsers of those principles, governments, private sector, civil society, academia, who said, yes, we believe that we need to do this. We need to make sure that we are not redundant in our digital investments, that we're not tripping over one another, that we are deploying them in the right way to meet our overall objectives. And so our team takes forward that body of work and makes sure that actors on the ground understand how to deploy them accordingly. So to put it another way, then you are not only exporting the development activity itself, but in some sense, exporting the technological sophistication needed to do those sector things in those other nations at a high level? In some cases, sure. We do partner with the private sector and technology companies here in the U.S., for example. Uh, We've got a couple of partnerships that we just rolled out with MasterCard on driving digital financial services, particularly for women-led businesses. Uh, We've got a partnership that we just uh, launched with the Mozilla Foundation to build uh, ethical and responsible practices into those who code around the world. We have a couple partnerships with Microsoft as well. And in some cases, we are taking those technologies and sharing them in communities where we work. But we're also capitalizing on the great ingenuity that is coming from countries where we work themselves, where you have an incredible bunch of local talent who is designing technology and approaches that is really fit for purpose and really um, takes into account local needs. As one quick data point, if you look across Africa alone, there are over 600 innovation hubs and incubators where you have local talent, oftentimes young Africans who are coming together and understanding their local communities and building those technologies that really speak to what they want to see. 
Christopher Burns is the first ever Chief Digital Development Officer at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I hope you have a great day. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's Sentence Clarity Rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. 